listening to The Journey Podcast. The Journey is a college and young adult ministry of South Crest Baptist Church. We hope this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. I think uh, I have in my back pocket uh, some like stories, I think just up to um, my life right now. Now, I'm, I'm not very old, and some of you may think I am or that I'm not. I don't need your comments. I don't need your opinions on that, all right? But I'm just about to be 29, um, and so uh, I do have some things I think I've experienced and some, and some funny things indeed, and a lot of those stories are actually in some of my time uh, serving overseas, doing some mission work with my wife, Caitlin, and we were in East Asia for about two years, um, and, and one of the, how would I say it? I think a cluster of those funny stories was just in the realm of language difficulties, right? And so uh, we're, we're talking about really any kind of East Asian language and all that it kind of entails um, is difficult to learn. And so um, on the other side, we would meet a lot of people because English has become such an international language that they... Um, well, let's just say we had a lot of friends and maybe they wanted to be our friends just so we could teach them English. I don't know. Um, but what we would do a lot of times uh, in order to, to meet people and in hopes to maybe be able to um, share the gospel, maybe start a Bible study of some kind, is we would start something called what's called an English corner. Does anyone have any clue what that would be? An English corner. Okay. It's basically like a party that's that you that you throw and it has some kind of theme. And so we would talk about like college in America, you know what I mean? And so like the similarities, differences and all that stuff like that. And uh, a lot of them like to study a lot more than the Americans. And we would always talk about that, which was funny. But anyway, um, one of the times we would, we would give out, um, probably like the first week at every single English corner, we would, we would give out English names for those that wanted to, to have an English name. And let me just tell you, um, that was very wise of them to ask us to give them one. Because what would happen sometimes is that they would come up with their own English name. And sometimes it wouldn't really be a name. It would just be random kind of English words put together or something that you wouldn't call a name, okay? So there's this guy that I met um, and we were having just a really great conversation. And, um, and finally I was like, well, I need to, need to ask him his name. Um, it's probably in the local language. So I was like, do you have an English name? He says, yes. I said, well, what is it? He goes, meteor shower. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm, maybe I laughed. I don't know. But I, like, internally, I was like, oh, please keep it together, Cole. Please keep it together. And I was like, oh, okay, like, how'd you come up with that? I just like meteor showers, <laughs> okay? So it, even like, can I bridge into more conversation? And then I was like, okay, well, um, can I just call you like meteor for short? You know, like, and he's like, no, you will call me meteor shower. <laughs> I was like, all right, meteor, see you later. Um, Anyway, I can think of lots of stories like that. And, and what happened in that instance was he, he said something, right? He said he wanted to be called meteor shower. And, and I didn't really believe him. I didn't really want to take him at his word. Like I kind of leaned in like, are you sure? Like, how'd you get that name? And, and uh, sure enough, that's exactly what he wanted to be called. Um, I don't know about you, but just um, in our current climate and probably just for the past couple of years, um, 
I'll just ask you, a raise of hand, do y'all kind of have a growing uh, cynicism towards things that you hear maybe in the news or whatever, like kind of skeptical if it's true or not? It's like raise of hand. Like, it's okay. Like, like you know, this growing cynicism, like you hear something and, and you know, like, okay, that's probably jaded or that's probably like a, a half truth or I, I probably... Um, shouldn't tell my grandma because she's going to post it on Facebook and, and, and turn it into something that it never was. Uh, you get where I'm going there. And so one of the, one of the ways this kind of flushes out the most, um, and I, I'm, I'm being lighthearted here, just to let you know, but like it, it comes out um, in the presidential campaigns. It comes out in those ads, right? And so whether it's a half truth to make the other candidate look bad or a very, very exaggerated truth to make the, the current candidate look good, right? And so like you see things, there's these crazy exaggerations like Donald Trump once ran over a cat and didn't stop and see if it lived. <laughs> Joe Biden eats his cinnamon toast crunch without milk. It's like, no, like there's just like all these, like, that's pretty close to some of the ridiculousness that you hear. And so what's kind of going on in, in our media, uh, what's kind of going on in communication, um, not so much in the way that it's gotten branded, um, but there is in the literal sense, like pre-2016, there, there is a news that is fake. There's a lot of things that are not true, right? And so you like, raise your hand. In 2020, it's kind of hard to accept anything that you would hear um, as 100% true, as 100% authoritative, that you can actually take what's being spoken as literal. Or like maybe even the things that you consider most true, you're open to maybe like maybe 10% of it could be changed. You see what I'm, you see what I'm saying? So in steps, the Christian who throughout history um, has said that this book, God's Word, the Holy Bible, um, is exactly that. It is 100% true. It is 100% reliable. When we read it, we can take the words literally. I don't mean in the sense because there, there's, there's poetry in here, and we know we don't read poetry. Um, and when you're talking about grammatical uh, terminology, we don't read that literally. What I mean is you can read the Bible and it means what it says. There's, there's no like, well, Jesus didn't really mean he was the way, the truth, and the life. Like, no, he means exactly that. And thanks to Clarice McKinnon, she read it for us even in the original language and said, nope, that's what Jesus meant. And so I don't know if you resonate with this, but I think an important question to ask in this apologetic series, given that we really don't trust anything else, anyone else's words or, is that fair to say? We don't really trust anyone's words 100%. We don't really have this sense of like, they, what they say is 100% reliable. You know, if you do, like, probably not. I'd hate to break your heart, you know? But we're saying that about the Bible. And so tonight's question I want to pose to you is, cue question, why should we believe that the Bible is true? So many things that are not true. So many things that are partially true. But this is saying, it even speaks for itself, it's wholly true. Not holy, H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L. You got me there? Okay, holy true. Anyway, so my, my approach tonight 
is I want to talk about the Bible using apologetic argumentation. For those of you that have been here for a little bit, I've only been here since January. Um, kind of my wheelhouse is talking from scripture. I, I love that. I like finding my points from the Bible. And most nights we're going to do that. Tonight, um, what I want to do is I want to observe the Bible kind of from the outside looking in, if that makes sense. What are some arguments that people have brought together and compiled to, to sort of help us see, even in a logical scientific realm, hey, we can actually trust that this is true. And so I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. This is going to be one of the few direct references that I give um, to Scripture tonight. This is a Bible that I don't normally use, so I'm like, there we go. The pages are stuck together. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And it says this, this is uh, Paul instructing Timothy, a young disciple, a young pastor, about being confident in the word of God. And he says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And now all scripture is breathed out by God. Um, if we wanted to, we could get the Greek text out again and read that word is thea neustas, thea God, theos neustas, which is breathe. They're also another word for spirit. So quite literally, that's what it means. And it says it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And that actually, that through it, we can be complete, equipped for every good work, complete in the sense of knowing all that a Christian needs to know for salvation and know how to live and all those things. And so when you read, uh, when scripture speaks for itself and the Bible talks about itself, that's a very good thing to know, right? What does this book say about itself? Can we find that? Well, here it is. When it's saying things such as, hey, it is God breathe. Okay. That's some metaphorical language. But what I want you to, I think the, the meaning of it, what, what I believe is true um, is that it's so inspired. It's so touched by God that the writers were so influenced and guided by the Holy Spirit of God as they were writing this, that it's almost if in a metaphorical way, as you turn the page, you could see the breath of God coming off of it. Does that make sense? That's the type of inspiration we're talking about. That's the way the Bible tells us. If you're a real deal believer, you want to know what believers believe about the Bible. That's how we should hold it and take it. And so based off of that fact, what apologists have done throughout history if that's true, that's, would you agree by raise of hands, that's a pretty high way to look at a book, right? We don't talk about other books that way. And so based off that, you've heard 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. We're going to look at, we're going to look at some arguments that people have posed, some evidence, maybe some data that's there to help us really know why should we believe the Bible is true? And the first answer to that is, many of you may not know this, is that it's not like this English Bible just um, floated down and landed in my hands right before I got up here. And I was like, oh, thank God. I'm so glad because I didn't have anything to say before tonight, right? We, this English Bible has a history. There have been ways that it's been traced back to. You can see how it's been translated and how it's mainly been translated is this way. We should believe that the Bible is true because there is a mountain of manuscripts available. Okay, so what is what does I mean by manuscripts? What 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 am I talking about? Okay, so scholars use a science known as textual criticism. Did you know that that the Bible has been actually exposed 
to people who criticize it? Yeah, you probably did. People criticize it all the time. But not just people who are mad at God or mad at the church or whatever, but people who actually are smart and intelligent and know what they're talking about and, and judge literature and able to look at text and actually know if it is authentic or not. They'll use textual criticism. And here's a definition. It's the technique of restoring text as nearly as possible to their original form. Of restoring text as nearly as possible to their original form. And so here's the thing, the more copies of manuscripts that are available, the more or the higher the confidence in the reliability of that text. And check this out. The Bible stands far above as far as manuscripts. And what this means is that there was the original writings of Scripture. This is used in the New Testament alone. The original writings of Scripture. What we have today are 5,856 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts, okay? And so what those are is those are copies of the very original writings. 5,856 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts. Now, the Bible's first. We talk about Greco-Roman. We talk about archaic writings. The Bible is first, all right? That's the most that any piece of ancient writing has, okay? And we're just looking at the New Testament alone. How many do you think second place has? 4,000? 3,000? You say seven? <sighs> really stole the tension there, Kay. I appreciate you. It's a little bit higher than seven, I'm afraid. <laughs> I love that. No, it's, it's more than seven, but check this out. How many of you read Homer's Iliad at some point? So no, no one ever said, oh, this was just something that someone made up in the 1900s or something. Put it, in, put it in schools just to make us miserable, right? Like no one says that. Homer's Iliad. It only has 1,800 original manuscripts. And not to mention that the Bible has an additional, so 5,856 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts, has an additional 18,130 manuscripts in other languages that have been cataloged. Okay, now why did I tell you this? Because if we take for granted, if our school systems take for granted that Homer's Iliad was actually written by who it says it was and that we're, we're going to say, like, oh, this is good for our school systems and it only has 1,800, then why is the Bible doubted and critiqued by so many and says, oh, that's, that's not really who wrote that when we have 5,856 complete Greek manuscripts or fragmented and also 18,130. Is that a fair question to ask? Not to mention it meets the highest standards for quality above everything else. So not only that many, but actually the quality is good. Like you can actually read it. You can actually see it. Here's a quote I want to share with you. There's a guy named Dan Wallace. He said this. Y'all lean into this. You're a note taker. It's maybe something to, to take note of. He says, we have 1,000 times, 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for average Greco-Roman authors. Not only this, but the manuscripts of the average classical author are no earlier than 500 years after the time he wrote. So that means the closest we have are 500 years later for all these other ones. The, check this out. The earliest surviving copies of the New Testament are just mere decades from the time they were written. And that would make sense because they're copies of the original. So one of, one of my favorite scenes, how many of you like Friends? Yeah, I like The Office and Friends. I kind of go back and forth. But anyway, Friends isn't on Netflix anymore, which is kind of hard. But anyway, um, one of my favorite scenes 
uh, and friends is when they discover Monica's junk closet. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so Monica's seen as this clean, like put together person, really, really tidy. And, and you wouldn't have, you wouldn't know that there's this whole closet of junk and it was hidden for several seasons. Anyone such a fan that you can tell me which season that was? They discovered it, anybody? Eight? Wow, that's like a long time. Okay, so thank you for that. Um, so eight seasons in, I think, is it Chandler and Joey? I think they're kind of walking around the house and one of them opens this closet and all of this junk comes out. And like Chandler knows that it's Monica's. And then they're like, no way. Like this whole time, Monica's out of stuff in here. Like she gets home, she freaks out. Like, no, I didn't want you to know I have this junk closet. And this mountain of this stuff just kind of falls out and pours out. It's, it's everywhere. Everybody kind of knows um, that episode, if you've seen it. And so the way I, I, I like that scene, because that's kind of how I picture, like, some of you haven't heard of this stuff before. Some of you haven't known. Just like Fred, the friends didn't know about the junk closet. But guys, it's really just a matter of just open that door up to just, maybe that the open door is just a Google search. How many manuscripts are there of the Bible? And what you're going to do is you're going to open that door and mountains and mountains and piles and piles of evidence are going to pour, pour out. Does that make sense? And so that's what, we're, that's what we're doing tonight. And one of the common objections of the skeptic, which, pause real quick, didn't say this in the intro, um, first time or not, you've been coming, or first time in this what's called apologetic series, kind of looking at the defense of the Christian faith, we're welcoming your skepticism, right? And so the, here's something that a lot of skeptics of the Bible will say. They'll say, well, okay, you got all those manuscripts, but there are other manuscripts that Christians say are false gospels or, or whatever it may be. And, and there, there are some available too. Like, how do you determine the difference between the, the, the manuscripts that are supposed to be there and the manuscripts that are not supposed to be there? Like, there's something called the Gospel of Thomas. And why, why is that not in the Bible? And, and you know what? Actually, if you look at the Gospel of Thomas, it contradicts the other parts of the Bible. So that must mean that all of the Christian faith, all of the Bible is wrong. <laughs> I've actually found that there are a lot of critics that base these type of things, skeptics, off of a misunderstanding. So you hear, you hear the objection. They're saying, um, hey, there is, there is available data out there that contradicts the Bible. Thus, the Bible must not be reliable. Now, we, we, never, we never put it in the Bible. We never put it in Scripture. So they're saying, like, hey, one person or two people or however many contradicted what you said. Therefore, what you said must not be true. That's weird. People contradict each other all the time. Gospel of Thomas included things in it that none of the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, said. It, it, it countered it. And guess what? As you looked into it, it was very evident. That Thomas didn't write that. It's in a, a collection of books called the Pseudopigrapha. Pseudo means fake. Pigrapha, you figure it out. <laughs> I don't know what pigrapha means, but it's a collection of writings, anyway, that, that are fake, that weren't founded, that, that didn't make the cut for Scripture because they weren't in line with what Jesus taught and the apostles taught. Um, there's a lady by the name of Anne Rice. She actually was really into some like uh, kind of sci-fi type literature. She, she was an atheist. And, and one day she decided after being a, an atheist for 30 years and crit critiquing the Bible, she was like, I, I kind of want to know. She just assumed, hey, what are the criticisms of the Bible? Like, what are they using to, to attack it, its authenticity? And here's what she said. She's talking about the writings and, and things that she read into by those attacking the Bible. She said this, 
Some books for no more than assumptions piled on assumptions, conclusions reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture which has floated around the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. One of my favorite, um, I guess, scholars defending the Bible, his, his name is James White. And James White debates um, all, all kinds of people that oppose Christianity, different cults, uh, atheists, agnostics, whatever it may be. And one of them, he said that he doesn't believe the Bible because he doesn't believe in miracles. <laughs> and James White was like, so I just want to, if a miracle was documented perfectly, you still wouldn't believe in it. And he said, yes. <laughs> and he said, if you witnessed what everyone else around you called a miracle, you still wouldn't believe it. He said, no. And he's like, that doesn't really work, man. <laughs> and so there's these, these biases and opinions. There's these presuppositions that these criticisms bring into when they're looking at the Bible. Can you just give me a nod or thumbs up? Y'all see what I'm talking about? You with me? Good. And so why do we take the Bible, literally, why, why do we trust it as true? Because there's a mountain of manuscripts that we have to back up saying, hey, this is a, a lot of history. This is a lot that's going into, there's a lot of data here to say, this is what the Bible's supposed to say. It hasn't been changed for thousands and thousands of years. So we have these manuscripts, but, but here's a fair question to ask kind of next as we, we journey through this, as we look at the number, have we examined things beyond the number, such as, have, has anyone looked at these manuscripts word for word to see if they hold up to textual criticism? All right? Why, yes, they have. And so that's another reason why we should believe in the Bible. And that is because there has been an incredible preservation of the text. Here's what I mean by that. Scholars estimate uh, that textual criticism has been able to restore the New Testament text, get this, to 99.5% similarity with the originals. 99.5% similarity with the originals. Now remember I said that the manuscripts we have available are copies of the original text, all right? So like manuscripts we have available, copies of what the Apostle Paul wrote. That's really, really close, 2,000 years later. That's super close, uh, if you didn't know that, okay? And so what that means is that's only 0.05% variance. Since the Dead Sea Scrolls came out, they provided an opportunity, came out, were discovered. Since they were discovered, they provided an opportunity for comparison. Did y'all know that? When the Dead Sea Scrolls came out, we had some pieces of Old Testament Hebrew literature and also some, some New Testament pieces, uh, or that really pieces that helped us uh, kind of support what we were thinking and leaning towards. Hebrew scholar Miller Burrow writes this. He says, it is a matter of wonder that through something like 1,000 years, the text underwent so little alteration. Now you hear the word alteration, you're like, uh-oh. Remember, 0.05%. 99.5% accurate. Um, how many of you growing up, um, I don't know when, when it kind of changed. I think whenever we were like kindergarten age, 
Remember, was there a thing for you guys where you could only write in pencil? Like your, your teacher wouldn't let you write in pen? Probably a pretty smart idea for a kindergartner, right? And so I remember I have all these kind of older journals and things like that where I would write in, in pencil. And even now I kind of like writing in pencil. I've got like 50 of them in my office. Just my thing, okay? Don't judge me. Um, and so I'm writing in pencil. And a few years ago, Caitlin and I were making another move and I went back to my parents' house and I was looking through some of these old journals and things that I was writing. I'd save maybe some old papers, old classwork. And you could tell on some of them that were written in pen, man, they were, it were so clear I could read it. But do you, you know this, when, you're, when you uh, have written it in pencil, um, even just a few years later, it's really hard to distinguish, right? It's really, really hard to see. And it kind of dawned on me, whoa, man, was that me, TJ? Probably so I hit my mic. I'll try to. Let me use this. Use this handheld. We're going old school, y'all. Handheld. Billy Graham Crusade style. Let's do it. <laughs> Minus the amazing preaching. All right. So when I was looking through those uh, journal entries and all that stuff, one of the things I realized is, hey, that's, that's, really, that's really strange and really unfortunate because I'm only about 29 years old. These are maybe wrote whenever I was, I don't know, somewhere between eight to 10 or so. So we're, we're looking at 15, 20 years old or so, just things that I wrote weren't significant, but I already can't depict what the meaning was. I already can't read them anymore. And I was thinking about how crazy it is that we're talking about writings that are nearly 2,000 years old. We're looking at biblical manuscripts that are still available. I can't even preserve something for 20 years. You know what I'm talking about? That's pretty insane. And, and, and I know you're, you're tempted to, to kind of dismiss this, but here's, here's what I want you to be thinking about. Let's not be too fast to chalk up the incredible preservation of Scripture to just coincidence. You know what I'm saying? The one I'm saying is that there's a, there's, a, there's a God behind this. That's how Christians explain the preservation of the text. Like we can see scientifically that it's happened, but how, when you look at other texts that haven't, and the skeptic wants to ask this. He wants to, wants to say, um, but man, that 0.05% variance between these original manuscripts, that, man, they must be in those differences. That must be where we can know that we can't trust the Bible as true, right? In that 0.05%, we're going to see such a discrepancy, like one writer is going to say this, or maybe one copier is going to deny the, the, the deity of Jesus, and one writer is going to affirm it. And we're going to see that even way back then, they didn't really believe that Jesus was the Son of God. As it turns out, the Muslims were right. The Mormons were right. He is not really the true Son of God, God in flesh. Well, actually, what you should know is that the textual, uh, the, the guys who do the textual criticism, I don't know what to call them, they are so, so picky with what they will call a variant. They are so, so picky. And so how many of you like actually like your, your, the teachers who are really picky about your work? Like nobody did, right? Okay. But there are people like that who are really, really picky that are really great. I keep saying really a lot. Um, <laughs> that are, are helpful in situations where we need accuracy. And so I want to give you an example. They described this um, kind of illustration per se, a sentence that could be written um, in English, but of which the textual uh, critical uh, scholars would say were errors. And it's this. So the first sentence would read, Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. 
and you have five manuscripts. That was the first one. The second manuscript says, Christ Jesus was the Savior of the world. Notice how, did you see the difference? Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Do you know what? That counts as a variant. Did you know, actually, to be fair, in Greek, that's not really fair. <laughs> that's, not, that's not fair to count that as a variant. The, the writers flip-flop Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ all the time. Same guy. Yeah, same guy. Next sentence. Jesus Christ is the saver of the world. So missing I. You see where I'm going with that? That counts as a variant. On to number four and five. Instead of an E and the, they left the, the E off. And of the world, it said uh, word, <laughs> right? Five different things, tiny little things. One missing letter, difference between Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus. Out of those five manuscripts, do you know what, how many variances they have to do just for that? They have to say there's five variances. Now, would you agree if you saw that on paper that it's, it's pretty clear they're trying to say Jesus Christ is the savior of the world? Yeah? Yes or no? Are y'all tracking with that? Okay. So when we start counting up these differences, 99% of them are things like that. 99% of the 0.05% are things like that. And so the 1%, though, here's the beauty of it. None of that 1% conflicts with any of even the primary, secondary, or tertiary beliefs that we hold as Christians. Isn't that awesome? Are y'all with me? Hello? Can y'all hear me all right? Good, good deal. And so why believe that the Bible is true? We're looking at ancient books that don't even survive with enough copies to, to make even comparison available. And, we're, and then we look over at scripture and we see 5,800 copies just ready to say, hey, take a look at me. You're gonna see 99.5% accuracy. I think that's pretty cool. I hope you do too, amen. So why believe that the Bible is true? Because there has been an incredible preservation of the text. But can it be backed up in real history? Can it be backed up in real history? And my answer is Yes. So we should believe that the Bible is true next because there has been a lot of corresponding historical evidence. How many of you remember, can someone, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 to 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. That wasn't the mic, it was me. 15, three to eight. Paul says this, for I have delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Okay, so I want you to check this out. 
Um, the content, we'd say there's corresponding historical evidence. Um, the content of the Bible's writing was extremely early in the history of Christianity. So what I'm saying is that it's not like Christianity had been going for about 200 years and someone said, we should probably start writing about this, right? A lot of events, even in American history, aren't written about and gain traction until a long, long time later. And how long has our nation been alive? Like not, not very, been um, established, like not very long, right? And so when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, here's what's awesome. They've actually discovered that Paul is quoting an early creed that was just within five to 10 years or so after the crucifixion. It wasn't just something Paul made up. Like this was something Christians were saying, those specific verses. And then we have multiple eyewitnesses. There's a, there's a guy by the name of Peter Williams who says this in his book, Can We Trust the Gospels? He says, it is rarely appreciated that for us to have four gospels about Jesus is remarkable. But Jesus has more extended text about him in a generally closer proximity to his life than his contemporary Tiberius, the most famous person in the then known world. So he's saying in the Greco-Roman world, who knows Tiberius? Anybody know Tiberius? Yeah, fame comes and goes, buddy. Sorry, Tiberius. Um, anyway, <laughs> poor Tiberius. Anyway, Jesus overshadowed him. He, Jesus wins. Jesus is better. We we're just saying it. Um, what he's saying is that the writings of Jesus were more closer to his actual life and they were more extended, they were more pervasive than even the most famous person during Jesus' earthly lifetime. And then we have what's called extra-biblical confirmation. All right? So we see non-Christian sources. Y'all don't have to write this down. It's, just, it's fun to, to hear the names. Um, what these are, these are sources like Cornelius and Tacitus and Pliny the Younger and Josephus and others. Um, they're confirming facts. So these, these guys that we just listed those names that you don't have to remember, they said that they affirm things such as Christ's death under Pontius Pilate in Judea. They're saying that actually happened, that, that Christ was worshiped as God early on, that that was something that the Christians from the beginning were doing. There wasn't a change in the Bible that, Then they started worshiping him as God, that Christ's followers often experienced persecution. So we read that in Acts. That actually happened like heads being cut off for the sake of the gospel. And that Christians spread far and fast. We see that in Acts chapter 8, the spread of Christianity. One of the Apostle John's students, Polycarp, is actually an important link to the original disciples. So we have writings of Polycarp. Anyone ever heard of him, Polycarp? It's okay if you haven't. All right, he, we have his writings that we can look at and he talks about the church. Additional sources are the Jewish Talmud, Suetonius, Serapion, Thallus, Phlegon, Lucian, and the early church fathers. Now, why did I list all those people? You want my notes? You go check it. I'm saying real names are real people that are saying things that the Bible also says that have no agenda for Jesus at all. You tracking with what I, where I'm going with that? They have, they have nothing to win uh, by, by lying about this. They're, they're recording history. They're mentioning, as they're writing about the history in their Greco-Roman world, they're, they're mentioning Christians are coming up. Like, this crazy group of people are worshiping that Jesus guy is God. That's how it was happening. And I mentioned to you prophecies in the past that Jesus fulfilled, prophecies written in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. And so why, what does that have to do with the authenticity of Scripture? Well, first there's Isaiah 52 and 53, Isaiah 61, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 118, Jeremiah 31, just to name a few. Um, and so we have all these 
prophecies, you go and read that. We're going to, um, you know what? Y'all go to Psalm chapter 22 real quick. Psalm 22. I know this is heady tonight. Y'all stay with me. Some people like this stuff and some people don't, but here it is. It's the Bible. We're talking about it. Psalm 22. This was written at, oh, my mic. This was written a thousand years before um, Jesus, six hundred years before crucifixion was invented. In verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes that on the cross. You read the gospel accounts. He's saying, hey, I'm fulfilling Psalm 22. He was forsaken by the Father when he died on the cross. Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. That's verse two. We're gonna go down. Verse six, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. There were people mocking Jesus on the cross. By the way, this type, David wrote this Psalm, but this, these type of things that David is describing never happened to David. You tracking with that? David wrote the Psalm. He's talking in first person. So this has to be somebody. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Remember them saying that, mocking him? Hey, if you're really, really who you say you are, Jesus, just rescue yourself. Keep going down to verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. This is really interesting. I am poured out like water. And all of my bones are out of joint. Now, when you get crucified, all right, that's going gonna, that's gonna to happen. All right. Hope you all know that reality. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Do you remember us talking about the signs of the crucifixion last week? My heart is like wax that as you were crucified, fluid would build up around the heart and the lungs and you'd either die from a, from a heart attack or from suffocation. You remember that? My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shred and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Remember how Jesus was thirsty? They tried to bring up the wine. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have, this is, just gets better. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Was, were Jesus' hands and feet pierced? They stare and gloat over him. Did they divide his garments and cast lots for them, the soldiers? Yeah, they did. How long before the crucifixion was this written? 1,000 years. 1,000 years. Are y'all awake tonight? Like, that's incredible. Y'all see that for real, though. 1,000 years. That's crazy. And we'll, we'll, get into, we'll get into a conversation with somebody who starts attacking the Bible, and we'll be ashamed, won't we? 
Like, we'll, we'll back up. Like, well, you have a point. Like, I get it. Yeah, you don't have to believe everything. It's like, what other book can do that? Christians, friends, skeptics, wherever you are. I'm just telling you, like, look around, do your research. No other book has done that. Period. No other book has done that. And so what do I share these things with you? Man, I, I want you to be encouraged by how incredible your copy of God's word is. How, how, how incredible it is that we have this. How, how incredible it is that we not only can, this thousand year thing is not made up. You know, it's, it, it was discovered by someone much smarter than me. It was, it was discovered by a textual critical scholar. It's been affirmed by people who have no agenda for Jesus. People that probably would love to disprove his existence. Isn't that awesome? And here it is. And so what we need to do, and just a few examples, is we need to observe the historical evidence and realize it demands a verdict. <laughs> it does. You've got to look at it. You've got to decide. Is it, is it true or not? Don't be in the middle on this. What we presented demands a verdict. Did this really happen? And so a skeptic may ask then at that point, hey, I, I get what you're saying, like reading the Bible, but I've read a little bit. I, like what value can it actually bring to my life? Have you ever been asked that? Like what value can it actually bring? Or how many of you started a reading plan? It's like Genesis, okay. Exodus, okay. Leviticus, like I'm out, right? Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna go like listen to a sermon or something. I got someone back there fist, fist bumping anyway. <laughs> Okay, so what, what does it actually offer? So here's what I'm going to tell you. The Bible offers us in, in itself something incredibly realistic and something incredibly helpful. Incredibly helpful. And here's what I mean. I'm going to shorten this up because we're running out of time. What I mean by realistic is that in the Bible, what you're going to see are real people with real names and real hurts and, and real struggles that even the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified is crying and weeping and in turmoil, saying to God the Father, if you will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours. The one who died for our sins, we even, the Bible's revealing even in Jesus Christ, his, and he's fully God, fully man, even in him, a human weakness. That does not progress the cause of Christianity. That does not a very good thing to show if you're trying to trick people into believing in Jesus when you see him crying in a garden to his father, right? But that really happened. It shows real people. Jesus came to us in human flesh. He really was human. He felt he walked, he, he ate. He would love Tex-Mex. I just know it, all right? You know what's not a realistic book? And I think I say this, but we need to compare to the Bible, not to be hateful, but to be helpful. What's not realistic is a book that claims that its original writing was something called Reformed Egyptian, which is 
unknown and unfounded language. It's never been founded by anyone that claims that it was originally found on golden plates somewhere around the, the year 1800, but yet those are gone. But somehow we can have the Declaration of Independence that was much older still. I don't, I don't know how that works. What also doesn't work is a book that has something called anachronisms, and that means it uses words and phrases that are, were unknown entirely to the time it, it supposedly was written. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so like if a book was said to have been written in 1800, like there probably wouldn't be references to like the modern day president of the United States right now, right? That just wouldn't make sense. You're like, that wasn't written in 1800. They didn't know who Trump was, okay? There are things, if there's things in a book that include claims about indigenous people, so the people that were living at the time, a group of people that can't be discovered any, anywhere by, by scholars, by archaeologists who their sole job is to find and discover peoples that were living all around the world and specifically America. If there's a book like that, that is not realistic. And that, my friends, is the Book of Mormon. That is exactly what the Book of Mormon is. And you're saying, you're just, you're being mean. Like you just, you need to just let people believe what they want to believe. And you know what? That's right. But Dagummit, I'm too confident in my Bible to just let people go by believing this. And so here's the thing. If what I believe is based on an unidentifiable language not discovered by even the world's finest archaeologists, if what I believe originated on tablets that were around as late as 1800, um, like even newer than the Declaration of Independence, but totally undiscoverable, and there's no record of them, if the people who were the founders of what I believe in can't be discovered or verified by anyone whose exact job it is to do that thing, isn't that cause for some doubt? <laughs> is that fair? Belief in the Bible versus the Book of Mormon and a lot of other religious books is, is really a, a, a decision. Do you want your beliefs to be founded on logic or kind of white-knuckled white -knuckled appeal to, to emotion and experience? So we can believe that the Bible is true because it's realistic and credible and credible in its words. I want you all to go to John 6, chapter 6, verse 68 with me, and we're going we're gonna to close here in just a minute. I'm going to ask um, if the band would come up. I want to kind of step in here. And one of the decisions I had to make tonight is I've had a good amount of people asking me to to cover and speak into some of these things, knowing that it's going to be longer, knowing that it's not as much of a sermon, but we're presenting evidence. As I want you to know my heart here, um, but where we're going right now, I, I believe is kind of the nail in the coffin. Like if you're going to ask me, if I get to say one thing <laughs> to the answer to this question, this is what I would say. So I hope up to now has been edifying and helpful, maybe new or something to chew on for you, but this is the nail in the coffin. So in John chapter six, verse 68, nail in the coffin means it seals the deal, by the way, if you didn't know that. All right. Simon Peter, you know, I'm going to go back to verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. So Jesus says, drop some pretty hard words to hear. And a good portion of his disciples stop following him. You know, hundreds, thousands, somewhere in that range. 
So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We need to believe that the Bible is true because in the Bible we find the words of eternal life. Actually, in the Bible we find the author of eternal life. We find the word of God made flesh in scripture. We actually find our creator. He's revealed to us through the word of God. We, we, we find Jesus. That's how we're introduced to him. Everything we believe and say about him is in this book. And this is a word, the word of God that we find Jesus, again, to remind you, that's been supported by a mountain of manuscripts whose peak sits miles higher than any other in human history. It's, it has an unparalleled preservation of its text with so, so little discrepancy between the thousands of manuscripts that one is tempted to call it miraculous. You may not, but I do. A book that has lined up congruently right next to real human history and tested, confirmed, and affirmed as true by real people with real names saying this really happened. Not only that, it's realistic and helpful. It's sharing stories that are not myths and legends that contain characters and stories that we can never um, experience or attain their status. But here's what some of the Bible contains. Stories of people who lie, who steal, who kill, who gossip, who get jealous. Anyone ever done any of these things yet? Who die, who almost died. None of you have died, all right? Who suffer, who cry, who love, who marry, who divorce, who fight, who complain, who get bitter, depressed, and anxious and go a little crazy sometimes. But also people who worship, who work, who experience true life, who ask questions about God's existence, who doubt his goodness at times, but who have to learn just like us to trust him, even when we don't know exactly what he's doing and why and when and where. All of this is in the Bible, my friends, real life, real people like you and me. And finally, it's in the Bible that we meet our maker, Jesus Christ, the one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, who gives us the words of eternal life, who is the doorway to heaven, the one who says, I am the way, the only way to God the Father, the word of God made flesh who dwelt among us. He came, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended to heaven, and one day he's coming back to usher in a final judgment and justice. I don't know about you, justice that has been long, long past due, and to separate those who denied him from those who believed in him, one to eternal condemnation and and the other with him in eternal paradise forever as he gathers his people to make what? To make all things new on what's called the new heavens and new earth where we in Christ will live and dwell with him. The Bible says forever and ever and ever. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, only perfection in heaven with him. How do we know this, friends? The word, the word. Take God at his word. Amen? Take God at his word. For a time of response today, the band's going to keep playing. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. 
what I want you to do, we're actually going to drop the lights down a little bit. Hopefully you can still, still read um, just to kind of help you just kind of quietly reflect for just a few moments. And I want you to read what Psalm 19 says about God's word. And I want to just give you a few moments to reflect and pray over that and wrestle with how the Bible speaks of God's word. It says this in verse seven. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I love this. Verse 10. This is what I want you to meditate on. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. (laughs) Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is a great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want to give you a few moments, a few minutes. Don't don't be stressed about time. I want you to just ponder and reflect over verse 10. Is the word of God more desired by you than even gold? The highest treasure you could ever imagine. Is it sweeter than honey? Take a few moments to reflect on that and then we'll pray and dismiss. Father, there's a lot of people in different places in this room, but I just pray for all of us that we would treasure your word like Psalm 19, verse 10. May it be the highest treasure we we could um, have in our possession. May we see it as sweeter than honey. May we see it as true and reliable and looking at the mountain of evidence and all that we have. Um, God, may we embrace it. Uh, May we believe it. (laughs) May we proclaim it with boldness. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you are encouraged by today's podcast. If you'd like to learn more about The Journey, check us out on Instagram or Facebook at The Journey LBK. Thanks for listening.